Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel, or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app. This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Great show for you guys today. A little bit later, Ted Lasso co-creator and co-star and Bears fan, Brendan Hunt will be joining us. I'm very excited about that. Before we get to Brendan, though, we've got our normal Thursday rundown here with Lindsay Jones. Lindsay, how you doing? Well, I feel like this is a little anticlimactic now. I'm sorry that oh, I'm not stop, the star stop. of a show. <laughs> That's all right. I mean, Ted Lasso is... It's at the top of my list to start streaming. So I think this podcast today will be the final push I needed to go watch it. So I'm very excited to listen to your interview. We will talk about this a little bit later on the show. I've loved it. I tweeted about it. Brendan reached out. He's a big Bears fan. I figured everyone is talking about this. This is the time to have him on the show. So we did it. It was great. I'm excited for you guys to hear it. Before we could do any of that, though, we also have a very exciting Week 10 slate of games. There is a ton to get to here. We're not going to worry about any news this week. There's a couple more COVID uh, kind of occurrences around the league, but it feels like the big ones like Roethlisberger, for example, are probably going to be back by the weekend. So nothing that's going to affect these games more likely than not. So we're just going to get to the games. We have two games of the week this week. I want to start with the Seahawks and the Rams. This is suddenly, after the Seahawks losing to the Bills last week, a monster game. In the NFC West and it almost feels like the Rams have kind of gone to the back burner a little bit because they lost to the Dolphins then they were on the bye they beat the Bears in prime time but no one was super excited about that because the Bears were unwatchable that week as they typically are so I want to get into this the first thing I want to ask you as you assess both of these teams halfway through the season and you're thinking about the NFC West race as we get down the stretch if you had to pick one of these teams right now even beyond this week to win that division Gun to head, who are you picking right now? So I'm going to pick the Seahawks because they have the better quarterback. And if it's like one of those one game, one game to win and you get in type of deals, I'm going to bet on Russell Wilson sure. just about every time. I don't feel great about it because clearly the Seahawks have some pretty significant flaws, potentially fatal flaws that could very much keep them from not just winning the Super Bowl or being a Super Bowl contender, but from winning this division. But if if you give me one guy between Russell Wilson and Jared Goff, I'm going to pick Russell Wilson probably like eight out of 10 times. I'm going to pick him 10 out of 10 times. But okay. I think the Rams, the Rams are one of those teams where there have been a couple blips, whether it's that the game against Buffalo where they had to come back and it was a blowout for most of it, whether it was getting just stomped by the Dolphins in the first half of that game. They got screwed by a penalty at the end of that game, though, too. I I still kind of think they should have won that game. They could have won that game. And I honestly think that game is almost more impressive than it is a detriment to their resume. And when you're just thinking about them, 
all the changes they had this offseason on defense, how many young guys they're playing on defense. They just have felt to me like a team that is going to stick around and stick around and by the end of the year could be particularly dangerous. But then you dig a little bit deeper. I mean, they're five and three, obviously. But some of the numbers, you know, the Rams lead the NFL in EPA per play on defense. They're number one in the NFL. They're ninth in DVOA. And that gap is explained mostly by the fact that they've played the worst schedule of offenses in the league. So that helps. But I still think that even if you throw that out, their defense has been really good. All the people I know who are really obsessed with fronts and coverages, and modern defensive looks, you know, Stephen Ruiz is on this show. We talked about it. You know, Nate has talked about it a bunch. The Rams are really kind of at the forefront of that stuff. And I feel like they're going to kind of come out of this or they have a chance to come out of this as a real ready-made contender. And I think that has to start this week in Seattle because if they're going to win this division, I think this is going to be a big jumping off point for it. Yeah, it absolutely has to be because we kind of have a bad taste in our mouth about the Rams right now. I mean, the the last time we saw them, they looked completely out of sorts against the Dolphins. And I want to know how much of that game was an outlier, how much of that was Brian Flores just knowing how to play a Sean McVay team and bringing so much pressure that Jared Goff just couldn't handle it. I mean, he was just under constant pressure and I'm not sure how replicable that is. I don't think the Seahawks are the team to replicate that. So, you know, like I said, you know, that I'm going to pick Russell Wilson, you know, most of the time when I, when these two guys are going head to head, the fact is I don't think it's a great matchup for the Seahawks. I think the Rams, if you kind of go position by position, their fronts against each other, their receivers versus corners. I like a lot of the Rams matchups. Um, the one individual matchup, though, that is going to be fun as hell is Jalen Ramsey versus DK Metcalf. And they haven't been giving away a ton of details uh, out of out of the Rams right now, if, how exactly they're going to use Ramsey. You know, he has, isn't necessarily like a traveling corner. I mean, they use him in such kind of this hybrid role there, Brendan Yeah, they, he's done doing a ton of different stuff this year. But God, that is going to be so fun. And if we could get just one specific camera on those two guys <laughs> and a microphone on both of those guys, I mean, I would... I would pay extra. I mean, I already pay a lot of money to watch these games, but I would I would pay extra for that. Probably two of the best 10 athletes, pure athletes in the league. Would you say that's fair? Yeah. I mean, I think I would need to like rank them all out, but like, yeah, I mean, they're, they're both. Yeah, they have to be right. Because Ramsey's probably the best athlete cornerback in the oh, league. I think it's and, not even close. And We've all seen DK Metcalf with a shirt off, so I don't think there's really any doubt of like what sort of physical freak specimen he is. I mean, in terms of just pure explosiveness, I think they're probably tops at their position, each of them. I think you could probably make an argument for Julio on the receiving side of it, but I just think that the youth and how big Metcalf is, he probably has that just in terms of pure power, power is strength. You know, over time, I think you could probably give it to Metcalf straight line. And I think Ramsey is, it's not even close for the corners. You want to look at something fun, go take a look at Jalen Ramsey's mock draftable pitch. It's absolutely ridiculous. He's, first of all, he was 210 at the combine. All right. So that's 94th percentile among cornerbacks. His broad jump is in the 98th percentile. His vertical is in the 96th percentile. And he ran a 4-4 flat 40. He's one of the best pure athletes in the entire league. And now we get to see him against one of the other ones. By the way, another guy that's on that defense with Jalen Ramsey is probably the best athlete in the entire league if we're thinking height, weight, speed, everything else in Aaron Donald. So there's a lot of talent on this field. And I think that 
you mentioned the just strategy aspect of this, and I think it's a really good point. What do the Seahawks do after looking at what the Dolphins did against the Rams? Do they say, all right, they clearly struggle when teams bring a lot of pressure at them. Should we try to replicate that blueprint, or do we not have enough faith on our back end to do that? Because it's it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing, because I think you can look at it both ways. Last week, the Seahawks brought a ton of pressure. They played a ton of man coverage against the Bills, and they got absolutely torched because they don't have the personnel to do that. But do they have more faith in their ability to play that way and that style against the Rams, who can't beat the quarterback can't beat with his legs, a quarterback who struggled against the Blitz recently? So I just feel like that's the question they have to answer. Do we want to go to that extreme because we've seen it work not too long ago against this Rams offense? Yeah, and I'm not really sure what the answer to that is, other than that we did see the Dolphins put out a blueprint, right? You know, we've we've seen a Belichick tree put out kind of the blueprint of of playing this team but I just I'm I've so little faith right now in basically all of the personnel on the Seattle defense except for Bobby Wagner I you know I think he's the only guy that I kind of feel real confident in right now and um I, I I'm just it's not a great matchup and I just don't know if they have the horses up front I mean Carlos Dunlap had a great game in his debut for Seattle right like two and a half sacks was getting a lot of pressure but that it wasn't like meaningful pressure necessarily and they you had know, seven they... sacks, but it was a lot of like one yard losses for Josh Allen, where he's stepping up the pocket and they're hitting him late. I also, I also think that if you look at what the Dolphins were doing, Xavier Howard can guard Cooper yeah. Cup one on one. They had him following yeah. Cooper Cup into the slot on a lot of these plays. Seahawks don't have that guy. They don't have Xavier Howard to take away that quick option that the Rams want to get out of those looks when they're in shotgun and you're spreading you out a little bit. So I think that that's a really interesting thing. I also. The Rams like to run the ball. It's a huge part of their offense. We saw the Bills go all the way to the other side of that last week. They just said, we're going to throw the ball every single play because we don't trust your ability to stop it. The Seahawks have the biggest gap in the NFL in their DVOA on defense against the run and the pass. They're 29th against the pass, 9th against the run. It's the largest gap in the league. Are more teams going to look at what the Bills did last week and say, fuck it, we're not going to run it at all. Why would we? You can't stop us. There's no reason for us to. So I think those questions and how far either of these teams want to go in these extreme directions to attack the weaknesses of the other will probably be the story of how this game goes. So do you think Pete Carroll has a better understanding now of like who his team is and what how teams are going to approach it because he acted like <laughs> bewildered that the Bills it's were going to throw on them. Really so- spent a lot of time on that running game plan against a team that doesn't really care to run the ball if they don't have to. Th- that's the thing about uh, – but that's what I like about the Bills, and we'll get into them in a second. But the Bills aren't going to fight the tide when it comes to their approach on offense. If it's better for them to run the ball because you're playing too high like it was against the Jets a couple weeks ago when they're just going to all right, well, fine, we'll just keep running the ball, they'll do that. They're not going to fight against you, but if it's easier to throw it, they're going to do that. So I think that that's exactly, you know, I I like to see that with teams. And I think that more and more teams might look at the Seahawks and come to the same conclusion that Brian Dable did last week. I I think they have to, right? I mean, all of us have eyes. All of us are watching this game. We don't even all have to be analytic analytical football experts but what we're watching is that Seattle can't cover anybody and they have a really hard time rushing passers so you'd be really dumb not to try to throw the ball against this team and we'll see if uh, Pete Carroll has wised up to that Josh Allen last week one more note before we move on from this game 11 of 13 for 171 yards and two touchdowns with a perfect passer rating on play action which the Rams like to do so yeah, it's very say, different. I, I know a quarterback who really likes to to run some play action it's a little different. The, the Bills do a lot of it out of shotgun. It's not as pronounced. There aren't those hard actions and boots like the Rams have it. And actually, a lot of those plays last week, that numbers are a little bit 
uh, misleading because there were a couple of dump offs that went for a big yardage. The Seahawks actually did a pretty decent job of taking away the middle of the field. This year, I think they're ninth in the NFL in yards per attempt allowed against play action. So that's not terrible when you consider how bad the rest of their pass defense is. So I think that's an interesting thing to watch. Obviously, these two teams also very familiar with one another. So, all right, speaking of those Buffalo Bills, the Bills and the Cardinals did not think we would be trotting this one out as one of our games of the week started. Maybe I did. I picked both these teams to make the playoffs, but that kind of pumping up a Bills Cardinals game feels like an odd place for us to be. This is a really exciting game though. I mean, if we're talking about extremes, these two teams play on the far extremes with a lot of schematic stuff. So we have the two teams that really spread it out and throw it around almost as much as anyone else in the league. The Cardinals lead the NFL in use of four wide receiver sets. The Bills are second. They're 21 and 18%. No one else is above 9%. This game had a 49 and a half over under when it came out. It's now up to 56. So if you like teams slinging it around and you like a lot of points, this one is for you. I mean, this afternoon slate is really incredible. And oh, we have to talk about this. Yeah, so it's it's a weird quirk in the schedule, largely because the Masters is this weekend and the Masters yep. is going to be on CBS in the morning, pushing into the afternoon. So there's actually more games in the afternoon slate, the late afternoon slate, than there is at the, the one o'clock Eastern slate. So we have at the same time, we've got Bills Cardinals, Broncos Raiders, which Broncos aren't great, but those games are always weird. Chargers Dolphins, which we're going to get to in a minute, Seahawks Rams, and 49ers Saints. Oh, and Bengals Steelers. Like, this is an insane afternoon of football. And I mean, I just, it's 3.30 in the afternoon now, and I just had a three-shot latte. I'm probably going to have like a a couple four-shot lattes to get ready for Sunday afternoon. So um, I'm jacked up for this entire afternoon slate, and the Bills Cardinals might be the best game of that bunch it, I, it certainly might crazy? be the most entertaining game i so i used to complain that they put only a couple games in the afternoon slate and there were too many games in the early one but now as i've gotten older i actually kind of like that the afternoon slate only has like three games in it and i can kind of relax this is going to be overwhelming there's gonna be too much stimuli for too long of an extended period of time and i'm not sure that my brain and my 33 year old body is gonna be able to handle it yeah there's something nice about being able to like move from the eight box to like yes the putting just three three games on one television or two on one, one on another monitor. And that's not going to happen this week. It's going to be really, really fun. But yeah, I mean, this Bills Cardinals game, I mean, he said 56 points. The over-under is 56 I mean, now. I don't usually gamble or ever actually gamble in sports, but I kind of, that sounds kind of fun. I mean, maybe I'll tell my husband to like throw it in one of the online parlays that he does. Betting the over in games like this is always enjoyable, and I think this is that's the exact game we're going to be looking at here. I think that this game provides a lot. This game provides a lot. I think it provides a lot of entertainment, but I also think it's kind of informative. Both of these teams have done a great job, I think, building around their young quarterbacks. And if we look at some of the younger quarterbacks that we're going to talk about here in a bit, I think there are some lessons to be learned from the approach that both of these teams took. DeAndre Hopkins and Stephon Diggs going out and getting both of those guys this offseason has really transformed these teams. I think it's allowed the Bills offense on to take a huge step forward. And I think that DeAndre Hopkins' presence, period, for the Cardinals has been a really big deal for Kyler Murray. I was talking to a coach this week for something I'm working on about how you build around a young quarterback. 
And he was saying to me that it's a lot of how you should really build in a lot of half field reads into what you're doing just to give them quick decisions, quick decisions, quick processing, all of that. And you should do a lot of stuff with that single X receiver on the backside just to have him there alone. That's always an option. That's exactly what DeAndre Hopkins is. He's the best X receiver. And building that into Kyler's just menu in his second season and combining that with what he's doing with his legs, everything else, it's just a really good lesson to learn. Having that security blanket is important for every single quarterback. And I think it's made a world of difference for what Kyler Murray has done in his second year. Yeah, absolutely. When you And we look at the Cardinals, I mean, we think back to when they hired Cliff Kingsbury in the first place, and it seemed to be this completely kind of off-the-wall move and a lot of criticism about why the Cardinals were going this, this way. It made total sense when you paired him with Kyler Murray because this is what Kyler needed to adjust to the NFL. I mean, it would have been a complete disaster if it was the wrong coach, the wrong scheme, you know, could you imagine if it was Kyler Murray with, I don't know, Mike McCarthy or Jason Garrett, or, you know, I'm just trying mm-hmm. to think of a lot of other supposedly offensive minded head coaches who would have completely. I mean, look at what Daniel Jones is doing right now with Jason Garrett. I mean, look at what that's doing for his development. It can make or break you. It's a huge deal. So, it, you know, so I just love to see that they, they had a plan. And what's really intriguing about both of these two teams is that they both had plans, but they were not the same plan. It just shows you that you don't have to have the exact same blueprint. And yes, they did go out and know that they needed to get a true number one wide receiver, but they are different guys. You're never going to put Stefan Diggs and DeAndre Hopkins into the same wide receiver bucket, other than the fact that they're both really freaking good. But there's just clearly this this understanding of all of our futures are tied to this quarterback for good or for bad. You know, Josh Allen, I think had probably a lot more pressure coming into him this year, just given that it was already his third year. He was so bad as a rookie a couple of years ago, but they really have just understood what they needed to do to make him successful. And it isn't necessarily working week to week, but I think it's so far advanced from where he was two years ago. And that's really a credit to um, everybody within that Buffalo Bills organization for going out and making the trades, you know, really focusing on your offensive line, focusing on that wide receiver core in free agency. And um, yeah, I mean, I mean, a year ago, would we have been talking about Bills Cardinals? But no, absolutely not. And it's because of the moves that they've made and the development of both of these quarterbacks. It's been so fun to watch Stefan Diggs really grow into this number one option. I mean, I obviously had a big year last year in terms of the splash plays, but he leads the NFL in receptions. He leads the NFL in receiving yards. He's a true bona fide star. So he's sixth in the NFL right now among receivers with at least 30 targets and yards per outrun. So that's not just a volume thing either. It's not like they're just throwing the ball a ton, and that's why he's piling up these numbers. His efficiency is right there with the best wide receivers in the NFL. And I always thought he could be this guy. I thought he could be the true number one alpha receiver on an offense because, like you said, he's so multifaceted. He can line up inside. He can line up outside. He's a great route runner. Hopkins is that true X guy. Diggs is a little bit more versatile in the things that he does, and I think that that's really unlocked the rest of this receiving core. You know, the Bills, like I mentioned before, they use four wide receivers, the second most in the league after Arizona, and having Diggs be able to play all these multiple spots, having a guy like Gabriel Davis come in and be efficient from day one, they can hurt you in a lot of different ways, and it's really cool to watch. The Kyler stuff in his development, I think, has been really amazing. And one of the things that I think really is important for this game is how good he's been when teams try to blitz him. You know, we've talked about this. The pressure and the sacks and everything else torpedoed that offense a lot last year. This year... It hasn't at all. He's actually number two in the NFL in success rate against the Blitz this year after Patrick Mahomes among all quarterbacks. 
That's good. incredible for a second year guy. Some of that is scrambles. And I think some yeah. of that is him making teams pay for playing man coverage and bringing a lot of heat. But he's also averaging 8.8 yards per attempt. That's the seventh best mark in the league. So you just see his development in real time. And it's turned this Cardinals team into a completely different animal. And you can't, I mean, and we do talk about, and yes, there are scrambles involved in there, but you can't take that part out of his game or discount that for Kyler Murray the way that maybe you could for some other quarterbacks because he's so dangerous on those plays. And those plays are just as important as the design runs or his passing plays. So it's been really fun. And I will say about the Stephon Diggs trade that you already mentioned, I was, I was wrong about it. I did not like it. And I'll, I'll say it. Why now. didn't you only, like it? Well, it wasn't because I didn't like Diggs. I didn't like the value for the bill on the bill's side. I didn't like what they had to give up. Especially after at, at DeAndre Hopkins went for a two, like 20 yeah, minutes earlier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was what it was. It wasn't that I didn't like imagining what Stefan Diggs could be in that offense, but I think there were just too many questions. Okay. It's a first round pick that, that seems really high, especially because of DeAndre Hopkins. There was the variables of what if Josh Allen sucks? What if Josh Allen is really inaccurate? We know we've seen how Stefan Diggs sometimes can get angry in situations like that. None of that stuff has happened yet. Yes, it's only November 11th here, but it's worked out, I think, far better than I've, you know, than I expected it to. And at this point, he was worth the first round pick. And yes, Justin Jefferson, I think, has been really good and one of the best rookie wide receivers this year. And I think the Vikings did well with the pick that they got there. And Replacing Stephon I think both Diggs, teams are probably happy. Both yeah, teams are I probably so sitting there too, like, I'm so. glad we made this move because of how good Jefferson has been. But I think if you're the Bills, paying for the certainty is worth it. And the reason that I'm actually okay with the first round pick price tag with the trade is that a lot of these guys get traded for first round picks. Let's DeForest Buckner, for example, right? Yeah. That move came with an extension. He becomes one of the highest paid defensive players in the league. Trading for Diggs, he was locked in. He had five more years left on his deal, or four more. He had four more seasons left on his contract. Next year, he has an eleven point six million dollar cap hit. When you're talking about the best receivers in the league now making twenty million dollars a yeah. year plus, that's a really good value. We'll see if they renegotiate that. Yeah, I was gonna say, he, but, how long will he be happy on eleven million dollars a year? But let's just say that he sticks to that eleven million, eleven point six million dollar cap next year and you give him a little bit more guaranteed money you do some bonus restructures whatever even if you can give him a little bit more immediately but still have that cap hit be decently low next year you're getting him at sub market value for two seasons and with the rest of your roster in the window that you had I think that line of thinking makes sense yeah absolutely and I I like it a lot better now than I did back in back in March and I'll admit that I was wrong about that I believed in it because I was always a big Stefan Diggs guy. I spilled a lot of ink over it, and I talked about it a lot, and I'm glad it worked out because I would have looked silly if it didn't. I was very on board with it. One more quick kind of X's and O's note before we move on from this game. Similar to what we were talking about with the Seahawks and their blitzing, these are blitz-heavy teams, both of them. And I'll be curious to see how they respond because of the teams they're playing against. So the Bills have ripped teams that played man coverage against them. You saw it last week against Seattle, and it's been that way for most of the season so far. The Cardinals have a 40% blitz rate, which is the fourth highest rate or fifth highest rate in the league. They play a ton of man, a ton of press. Are you comfortable doing that against a team that has shown that's how they can slice and dice you? On the other side of it, are the Bills comfortable bringing heat with Kyler Murray back there and what he's been able to do. That's a big question. Also, Matt Milano is not playing in this game. He's still on IR. 
losing him in the middle of their, your defense when you're having to worry about Kyler on those scrape exchange plays on read options, worrying about him scrambling. I think that could be a huge loss. And we'll see what happens with the Bills' offensive line getting back a little bit healthier. Mitch Morse is questionable again, and I believe Cody Ford is also questionable. Their patchwork line did a pretty good job last week when Seattle was bringing more pressure. Can they do that again if the Cardinals bring a bunch of heat the same way they have all season? So questions to answer, but a really so, fascinating game. I think the answer to your question on both sides is answered by the fact that Vegas has that line at 56 right now. There you go. That's right. That's all we need to know. All right. Let's get to our favorite matchups of the week. Lindsay, why don't you start us off? What is your favorite matchup of week 10? All right, so I'm going to cheat a little bit here because That's this is okay. not because it, it's not a, you know, linebacker versus running back kind of matchup. But another game in that after window, afternoon window that's really exciting is Dolphins Chargers, not necessarily because of the records of these teams, the poor, sad, depressing Chargers, but it's because we get Tua Tagovailoa versus Justin Herbert, who, you know, last week we got Tua versus Kyler, which was it lived up to it, it probably exceeded our expectations oh, and you and I were both Absolutely did. But we were already really excited. So our bar was really high for that game, and it and it even surpassed it. And I think this game, while I'm not sure just because of where the Chargers are I, at one and six, but I'm, I, I think this is going to be a really fun day to watch these two first-round pick quarterbacks. And it kind of gives us a chance to look at the, the top of this draft and how each of these teams got here, how these quarter – I mean, because look, back in – August, when we were doing all of our preview pods, we weren't talking about Tua. We weren't talking about Justin Herbert. And now all of a sudden, these two teams are two of the most fun offenses to watch. We're looking into the future about what are the Chargers going to be like long term now because they have their guy. And we're getting to see kind of the results of this long term rebuild that the Dolphins are going through. So this matchup is really fun. Um, hopefully, you know, they're not going to, those teams aren't going to get to play each other every year most likely, but hopefully this is another one of those games where it's just a preview for what's coming in the NFL as this next generation of quarterbacks is taking over. I cannot believe how excited I am to watch this game. I mean, if you had just brought up this idea to me in week two, uh, that Chargers Dolphins would be one of the most eminently watchable games on the slate in two months. I would have been like, all right, that, there's no way. Cause, Ryan cause Fitzpatrick I, versus Terod Taylor. Exactly. Nah, and nah. even let's say, hypothetically two is even starting and and you could tell me that Herbert was starting I still wouldn't have projected it this way just because I didn't expect Justin Herbert to already be one of the most exciting quarterbacks in the NFL on a play-to-play basis he is unbelievably talented I mean the, the arm talent and the where how he's putting these balls to different places on the field it's incredible to watch and Tua also has an exceptional skill set. It's different. He doesn't have the arm strength, things like that. But you saw it last week, how much they were getting him on the move, how quickly he gets the ball. We talked about it a bunch on Sunday night. Just in terms of the product that you're taking in, these guys are fun to watch. And if these guys hit and Burrow continues to do what he's doing, I mean, we could be talking about one of the better quarterback classes that's come along in a really, really long time. Because even in classes where you have a couple guys up there, you're going to have some misses too. I mean, even if you know, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen, those guys are good. Josh Rosen, Sam Darnold. I mean, there are a lot of questions along with those guys. So Baker Mayfield was the number one yes, pick in that class. Yes. 
So, I mean, we could have, if this is a clean sweep, it, it could be a class for the ages. I'm not willing to get there yet. I it, People can walk me back, and that's fine. It's been one game from Tua. But I still think that overall, the talent and how much fun these guys could be to watch, they could be in a different category. All right. So, as part of this experiment, I wanted to look back at the top of this draft and figure out it's not like we have to redraft it necessarily but it's pretty early for that I was curious though about how many of the teams that were picking early would have made these same choices I think it's clear with the Bengals that Burrow was the right choice he will be the right choice for them really long term what about at number two the Washington football team who drafted Chase Young who very well could be the defensive rookie of the year this year but knowing what we know now oh, did they Justin make the Herbert. right call it's not there, even a conversation right? You'd absolutely take Justin Herbert if you were redrafting those guys right now. And not Tua? Oh, I would take Herbert. But from Knowing what I've seen now. from Herbert, this is I, I'm sure we'll have this conversation a thousand times over the next two years. From what I've I'm seen just trying to get right ahead of it. Now, from what I've seen right now, I don't think you could go any other direction. I think you could make an argument that Justin Herbert should have been the number one pick. For sure, on what yeah. what we've seen so far. I mean, his skill set is otherworldly the guy is already one of the best arms in the entire league and the way he moves around with that frame I mean it is shocking how good he has been I think Justin Herbert is going to wind up being a really good case study one for college football and what the hell was Oregon doing and for scouting quarterbacks because I think there was just a lot that must have gotten missed about him and misjudged based on his personality, based on the scheme that Oregon ran, how much they misused him. But I'm really looking forward to kind of all of the the reactionary stuff that's going to happen in quarterback evaluation based on Justin Herbert's, not just his rookie season, but maybe what's going to happen over the next couple of years. I'm telling you, we're going to have so many 6'6 guys that look great in the pads drafted and fail because of Justin Herbert. It's inevitable. I, I, I think know we'll probably end up getting into this a little bit uh, a little bit more later. But so the other teams in the top five, Lions, Jeff Okuda. I mean, I get what they were doing there, but he has not been the best cornerback in his rookie class. Would they have wanted to draft a quarterback? I mean, that's there was- tougher. That's tougher. Just because for them with Washington, the reason you could make the argument is that they're starting over. It's a new regime. Yes. You absolutely could make the case that this isn't our guy. We're going to go in a different direction. With the Lions, they had to maximize this year. I mean, those guys are coaching and team assembling and for their And my, jobs. have they maximized it. They always are. Matt, Matt Patricia is a maximizer. Wow. If I, this is them maximizing it, holy shit. Well, I, th- I think that that's why the days are numbered there for everybody in charge of the Detroit Lions franchise. And then the Giants took a tackle, Andrew Thomas. Probably the right position, the wrong guy. Oh, yeah. That position, you'd, take Wirf, you know. you'd take Wirfs instantly right now. Or even Makai Becton. But yeah, I think you take Becton. Oh, or Becton, yeah. Yeah. And then Tua was at number five with, with Miami. So I just I just think in, you know, in the Chargers took Herbert at number six. And of those picks, Herbert was the one who was probably most panned. And people wondering what the Chargers were doing and trying to, you know, understanding what their plan was. And understanding they needed a quarterback, but really unsure about Herbert at that point. And it's just really fun to think that, you know, it was only, I mean, we were already in the pandemic when the draft happened. It wasn't that long ago. It feels like 18 years ago, but um, how much more we've already learned about the directions of these franchises. And I'm super excited about this game and trying to figure out how I'm going to handle it. Like, do I put that game on one television, one monitor, and then 
the red zone on the other. I mean, the six games. I'm already stressed out played. about it. I'm already stressed out about the six afternoon games. I just, it's so easy when there aren't that yeah. many, but I'd probably want it the other way though. If there were two games and 10 in the early slate, I'll never be happy no matter how they organize it. Well, this is going to be fun though. Cause we get golf all morning and then we get football all day and it's going to, you know, like, look, the, the night game is not that great, right? The night it's game Raven, is Ravens uh, Patriots. I believe. Look, I'm, I'm never going to not watch Lamar Jackson. Like, I will watch Lamar Jackson every chance I get. I'm actually interested in watching it. But, you know, it will be like a little break. Like, we can all kind of come down after after what hopefully will be a really wild end to the afternoon and then just, you know, kind of relax and have to see. Why do they have Patriots in back-to-back primetime slots? They do this all the time. It happens all the time that we have to see the same teams in primetime. And when the teams aren't good, that doesn't help. Also, guess guess, guess what's coming on Monday night? (laughs) the robert mays misery hour or three hours vikings vikings bears yeah at least we get to watch dalvin cook that's all that really matters okay here's my matchup of the week bucks defense against the panthers offense and i want to talk about this for a couple different reasons i think you could make an argument that the coordinators of these respective units are two of the top five head coaching candidates on the market right now with with todd bowles and joe brady i mean at least in the top 10 And they're two very different options. And I think that's an interesting thing to consider because going the direction with Todd Bowles and bringing in a defensive head coach versus Joe Brady, I think there are franchises that could be set up to do it. But I also could get the argument for, we talked about this at Barnwell yesterday, if you're drafting Trevor Lawrence and he's the number one pick and you're the Jets, I absolutely would pair him with a play-calling offensive head coach to ensure that he succeeds or give him the best chance to succeed. But if you're a team like Atlanta and you have a quarterback that's 35 years old and you really are just trying to remake the franchise, everything else, you bring in a guy, a Chan Gailey type to be your offensive coordinator that can give you a couple years that you're not worried about getting hired away. It's a harder needle to thread, but I still think it's possible. So if you were just thinking about those two guys, do you have a preference just in terms of the type of coach you would want to build around? Or do you think it matters what your roster looks like and trying to graft it onto that? I mean, I think you have to just get the best offensive mind and the best play caller that you can get. I so, definitely think that as well. Yeah. And so, you know, is that is that Brady? I mean, is he ready? Is he is he there yet? I mean, I don't know. We've kind of moved away from like the next Sean McVay, like as being the hot thing anymore. But yeah, I mean, is it is it him? Is it Arthur Smith? Because, you know, he's been so offensively creative. Is it Brian Dable? Is it Kellen Moore? You know, I know, I know that's Barnwell's, you know, that's Barnwell's pick. I didn't give him enough pushback on that yesterday. That offense is not good and I don't like watching it. I, I do still wonder like who he is on his own because he has been tied to two very mediocre. Well, I just, I just wish that we got to know. (laughs) I just wish we got to see a little bit more of like him outside of because then we would just know one way or the other if this if this guy was good I or guess not that's I mean, fair I don't know it just seems like there's a lot of carryover between last year's offense and what they are right now and that has nothing to do with Mike McCarthy yeah but how much of that is still the Jason Garrett DNA I just I don't know but so yeah I mean I think you we probably you should have pushed back and Bill if you're listening I'm now pushing back on that that he might not be in my not. top three or top four. Oh, I'm going to text him. I'm going to make sure he listens. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, it, you know, Brady seems, it, it seems so young, but look, Sean McVay was super young. A lot of these guys 
are really young. I want to say Kyle Shanahan was young, but he's actually like my age. So, um, you just got to like get the 37 best. when he got the job. That's pretty young. Yeah. I, 37 is great. I would love to be 37. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Um, uh, well, here's, the, so, yeah. oh, here's the thing. Here's the reason that Joe Brady, I think is a candidate and his people were talking about him. One, it's what he did last year at LSU. But if you watch that offense this year in Carolina, they are fantastic about getting their guys open and creating space. And I think that's why it's an interesting matchup, even if we look beyond the names, just on the field, X's and O's. So I talked a little bit about this with Greg Alman yesterday about how the Bucks, the way that their defense is constructed, they have a hard time getting to the flat every once in a while. And teams that stretch them horizontally can have an advantage every once in a while. And I went back today and I watched all of Teddy Bridgewater's completions against Kansas City because they're also a pretty blitz-heavy team. I thought, all right, what can translate to the Bucks? And they did such a great job of attacking that exact area. There was a nice little completion of Mike Davis from that side. McCaffrey's touchdown was doing that where he was coming back across the formation, attacking linebackers in space. All of the ways the Bucs can tend to struggle, the Panthers have done that with the design of their offense just inherently. So I think that their game plan against the Chiefs last week is actually pretty applicable to what you'd want to do against Tampa Bay. So the ability to attack a team horizontally, stretch them all the way to the sideline, hurt you in the flat with your backs, get your guys in space against linebackers. That's what Joe Brady does a great job doing, and I think that's exactly what they should try to do against the Bucs. So it's a fascinating matchup, in my opinion. How much is it going to hurt him, you think, that Christian McCaffrey's not going to play? We only got to it, see him back. It does hurt, but I also think Mike Davis can do a lot of that stuff. So that exact the play I'm talking about, I think it was in the first half, Davis was lined up on the right side in shotgun. They had two vertical routes on that side to clear it out. And Davis just immediately released into the flat. They hit him for a nice little gain with all that space, just ran up the sideline. It was a really nice call. And there's and even the McCaffrey touchdown, Davis can do that. Some of the angle route stuff, they hit McCaffrey on one against Sorensen that was well done. That it has more to do with just re- refined route running that McCaffrey does well. But I think a lot of this stuff is more about design than it is the specific receiving skills of Christian McCaffrey. And so when I look at this game, you know, I don't think the Panthers are a playoff team right now, but they are one of those just must watch team. I don't think anybody wants to play totally them. Agree. I, I loved the way that they went into Arrowhead, kind of the the mindset that they had. Matt Rule and Joe Brady, they were not scared. I mean, the way they called that game, the way that they were aggressive, they called a fake punt. They went for it on fourth, fourth down. I mean, they were not afraid. And, you know, so they're really fun to watch. And I'm just... I like seeing what they're going to do and how they're attacking teams. This game for me is more about what are the or what are the Bucks going to do and who are the Bucks? How do they rebound from last week? Because I mean that was just one of those like steamroller games where it got away from them really quickly and then everything went wrong. And I mean they're not as bad as they looked the other night, but now we're seeing you know Bruce Arians today talked about how Antonio Brown needs fewer targets. And look, we're one week. One game into the Antonio Brown experiment, they're already kind of talking about how he had too many targets in one game and they didn't get enough. You know, Mike Evans was open a lot, but he wasn't getting the ball. And I just I I think this is just a really important chance for the Bucks to just get back on track and change the narrative about them and not let this kind of spiral away because, man, that was that was an ass kicking. And I just want to see where they go next. And I, I think that that's exactly right. And my question is, is this the team to do it against? Because you have an offense that's influenced by a lot of the things that the Saints do in what Joe Brady does. And I think that he has an understanding 
the same way Sean McVay did about how to attack a defense like this. So it's a really important matchup because I think that it's not necessarily a sort of get right game that it might look like on paper when you look at these two teams records. One more thing before we move on from here that I thought was really interesting. Teddy Bridgewater was 11 for 15 last week against the Blitz against the Chiefs. Did a really good job of getting the ball out of his hands quickly. He has the seventh quickest time to throw in the NFL. It's 2.42 seconds. But only 50% of his throws are happening under two and a half seconds. If you compare that to other guys in the top 10, they're at like 60, 65. So what that means is when he's getting the ball out quick, he's getting it out really quick. So I'll be curious to see what sort of stuff we have, whether it's schematically or his decision-making, to bring that sort of approach to this game against a team that likes to bring a lot of heat. Because when they want to get the ball out, they have designs to do it, and I assume we'll see a lot of those on Sunday from the Panthers. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? Show up for a friend? Show up for yourself? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is... Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Showing up for yourself, that's a big one. That's exactly what therapy is. Doing what you need to do. Carving out the time that you need to make sure that you can show up for yourself and take care of what you need. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash maze today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash maze. All right, Lindsay, I want to try something new. We had Barnwell on this week. We had mailbag questions. I had so many good ones that I actually wanted to answer a couple more of them with you. And I think we might try to start doing this on each Thursday show where this is a test balloon. So I want to start with a question from Cody Ash. Cody's question is, he asks, how significant is it that the Dolphins, how significant would it be if the Dolphins make the playoffs and Tua turns out to be good? Should we expect to see more active tanking in the NFL as a result? I think this is a really good question because I think for the same way we talked about with Justin Herbert, I think sometimes when things succeed, teams learn the wrong lessons from it. And I think in Miami, you have the perfect people in place to allow this to happen. Brian Flores, Chan Gailey, bringing in a guy that was off the street to really get the most out of your young quarterback. I think they really kind of threw a no-hitter with the people in charge in Miami to make this happen, and I think we've seen it fail. So I could go both ways on this. How do you feel about this Dolphins blueprint and whether we'll see teams mimic it moving forward? Well, if they were tanking, they did a really bad job of tanking. They won three out of their last five games, including their last two games. So they, they still really, finished with the top five pick. Though. They did, but they got real lucky in this. Like if, if the long-term story, if eventually we're going to look back and be like the dolphins tanked to get to it, a lot of things had to go right for them to wind up getting to it. The Bengals ended up with the number one overall pick and needed a quarterback. Joe Burrow had the best season in college football history to become the number one overall pick and to become the best quarterback in that class. That had to happen. Um, just the way the teams that were picking above them 
weren't going to be taking quarterbacks at that time. Although, as we just mentioned, Washington probably should have taken a quarterback there. So, you know, I think a lot of things had to happen for the Dolphins to get the quarterback that they wanted and the guy that maybe was always their their target. So I think you have to be really careful as a franchise when you talk about tanking. And the thing that players will always tell you, and I think anytime we talk about tanking in the narrative, is that you can organizationally tank in terms of how much money you're spending, the the way that the Dolphins did it, shedding a ton of veteran salaries, you know, trading away Ryan Tannehill, a lot of those type of, you know, cutting a lot of their their older guys. It's really hard once you're in season to actually tank. The one interesting part is, though, the Jets seem to be doing this correctly by not firing their coach at midseason. Um, they're clearly on this path. I mean, it got real close there the other night, but we're you just don't see in-season tanking. It's really hard to get your professional football players who don't have guaranteed contracts, who are, you know, kind of playing week to week, you know, hoping that they don't get hurt, hoping that they continue making their paychecks to lose games for something that's going to happen in the future. So it's a really dicey proposition to say just because it worked for the Dolphins that they ended up getting their quarterback that you can tank. I mean, when are some of these other, I mean, like, what are the other cases of like really the Browns, successful? I mean, the Browns tankings? have, it, it didn't really work with, with the Browns. I mean, to a degree it did. I think that getting Miles Garrett and things like that, you know, Baker Mayfield, didn't really work out, but having that number one pick to get the quarterback, I tend to support it as a practice, but I also understand that it has a lot of downsides because it's hard on the guys in the building. And I don't think you can do it for an extended period of time. I think the way the Dolphins did it, where it's one year, let's get a ton of picks. I mean, the the amount of draft capital they amassed over that year is crazy. And they still have more coming. That part of it, and the trying to get into the top five, shedding salaries, starting over. I support that. And only tanking for one year yeah. so you're not burning games, burning years for younger guys and having it wear on them. I think that's important. But again, I think that the way they did it last year and having Brian Flores and having the fact that they had some fight by the end of the season, the fact that the guys bought into him, all of that stuff is really hard to do. And I think that maintaining a locker room culture of we're going to play hard. This is who we're going to be all of that stuff. And the way the dolphins did it, that's really difficult to do while you're actively losing. And again, I just think that balance is going to be really hard for a lot of teams to strike. So do I think the dolphins did this the right way? Absolutely. And I thought that they did it in the right way in real time. I always liked this plan, but I think it's incredibly hard to pull off. And I think without a guy like Brian Flores, it's kind of a high wire act. All right, let's get to our next one here. Corey Cranick asks, we haven't really had a non-mobile quarterback draft in the last four to five years that had much promise of being a star. Is that just going to be a requirement at the position from now on? I love this question. I wrote an entire story about this question at the ringer around the draft. I think the answer is unequivocally yes, that it is now just a prerequisite to be a star quarterback in the NFL and to be a highly drafted quarterback in the NFL. I don't know what you think. I I think that's part of it, right? Because when was the last time that a truly non-mobile quarterback was a high pick and who ended up being successful? So it's Jared Goff. That was 2016. We we know who he is. I mean, basically everybody else since then has had at least some modicum of of, uh, mobility. I mean, I had to go back and look at like, how much did we know about Daniel Jones and his mobility and some of these other guys? But 
I mean, I just, I think it is going to be a requirement. The one caveat here is that as long as John Elway is a general manager who is drafting <laughs> in the NFL, there's always going to be a place for the six foot six immobile quarterback. That's uh, why Justin yes, Herbert's so crazy, though, is because he's six six and he can move. That's why it's and he, nuts. And he can move. Well, so. This is another, you know, we, we talked about this with Justin Herbert and kind of the lessons that eventually we're going to learn and what teams are going to take from his his evaluation. But I guess my question, too, is like, just who's playing quarterback now coming up? What do high school quarterbacks look like? What are college yep. quarterbacks look like? And who are, I mean, are, are there immobile quarterbacks who are successful in college football right now? I Very don't few. think there's a ton of those guys. So I just don't think, I think the era of guys that look like Jared Goff and that play like Jared Goff and that play like you know, Peyton Manning and Eli Manning and Philip Rivers, we're just not going to see those guys really coming into the the draft at all because they're not going to be going to college football. Maybe those guys are going to stay in baseball or whatever it is. But it, it just football, I think, is moving beyond that. And I'm really excited that it is moving beyond that. And the quarterback position is looking so different. So I don't know if that's necessarily a negative, though. I just think the position has evolved enough and offenses have evolved enough. And you know, hopefully these last GMs will finally get drug along and have to adopt their their quarterback evaluation as well. I think it's coming from a bunch of different directions. I think the types of guys that are playing quarterback are different at lower levels. I think guys like Lamar Jackson succeeding yes. have, are changing which type of guys want to play quarterback. I've talked, when I wrote that story, I talked to a lot of people who watch a lot of high school football and they pretty much told me the types of guys and the type of athletes that are playing quarterback are changing. A lot of teams now are just saying, our best athlete is going to be the quarterback we're figuring out later. That's not yeah. how it was 10 years ago. So the pipeline is changing. And part of the reason, so it's going from back to front or front to back. And it's also going back to front and working backwards because in the NFL, as more teams play pattern match zone, a lot of man coverage, all these teams are blitzing a bunch. Having a mobile quarterback to solve problems is a really important factor of succeeding in the NFL. You're watching a team that has a mobile quarterback and that could beat you with his legs on a crucial third down and watching one that doesn't have one, it's night and day. You're watching two entirely different products. And there's just so many more answers with these teams that have that, whether it's Kyler Murray or Josh Allen. You watch these games and there's so many crucial plays you can pick up. Mahomes... For all of the arm talent and everything else, some of the most devastating stuff that he does is those back-breaking seven-yard gains on third and six that he can give you. If your quarterback can't do that right now, you're going to have a really hard time moving the ball consistently. I think the one thing that we're going to consistently see, and this is just a way that we think about quarterbacks, that we talk about quarterbacks, is that if you're accurate and if you can process information, it doesn't matter if you are five foot nine, 190 pounds like Kyler Murray is, which is probably more accurate about what size he is than whatever his <laughs> uh, his combine measurements say, or if you look like Justin Herbert, those are still going to be the most important things. And it just not, and then the athleticism, that's just going to come along because almost all of these guys are going to be um, athletic now. And saying talk, you, you mentioned talking about um, like you're watching two different sports. What does this say about Mitchell Trubisky? Because he was a mobile guy. I mean, that was kind of the the read on him, oh, right? Was uh, that like I'm the athleticism? Beyond that, it's about Nick Foles. Watching Nick Foles, he cannot yeah. move. And yeah. behind that offensive line, it's a disaster. It, it, you cannot succeed because of that. And that's what I'm. That to me is the biggest distinction. When I watch the Bears and I watch a team like whoever that has a guy that can actually get something on the ground, that's why I think Trubisky would actually be 
a better option for the Bears right now because you could get the scattered you know, eight-yard runs on third and seven, but I understand why they're not going back to him. I understand why they think Nick Foles is a better quarterback, but for this specific team, I think you absolutely could argue that the volatility of Trubisky might be more valuable to them. All right, let's get back to it here. In your mind, who has the most at stake in Week 10? All right, so I'm going to keep this quick here. But this is a huge week for Russell Wilson. And we already talked about so much of the schematic stuff in this game against the Rams. But I think he has a ton at stake in the MVP race and what that narrative looks like right now. Because it seemed like a couple weeks ago that he was going to run away with this award in all facets, statistically, narratively, everything was working in his favor. And now I think this race is tightening and we're at the midpoint of the season. And Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers, I think, are the two other guys that are very firmly in this conversation. Patrick Mahomes is not playing this week, but he's putting together an MVP resume. You know, he's 25 touchdowns, just one interception, which is insane. And this award often goes to the best quarterback on the best team. And while you said the other night on your Sunday night show that a lot of people have slept on the Chiefs and and how good they actually are. I am not one of them. I've been on the record, <laughs> I think, all along with my power rankings and everything of just how good I think the Chiefs, um, the Chiefs still are. So, you know, I think at this point he might, Patrick Mahomes might be the front runner here. And Rodgers is kind of creeping up there, right? I mean, 24 touchdowns, two interceptions. He has the highest passer rating in that group, um, has had to play a lot without Devontae Adams. And now he, when he does have Devontae Adams, they look almost unstoppable. I mean, he's got the best wide receiver in the NFL and one of the most, uh, I guess, the most dynamic wide receiver connection. And probably the only reason that he's not the front runner right now is that Mahomes and Russell Wilson exist. But I just think narratively and how we're thinking about Russell Wilson. In it's this a narrative season, award. This is, this is just a really huge week. I mean, he's now up to eight interceptions. Uh, it's not great. I mean, he had a really bad week with turnovers last week against Buffalo. And, you know, this is a tough week playing against the Rams in terms of turnovers. You know, Aaron Donald, the way that he's his pension for strip sacks, Jalen Ramsey. I mean, I just think if he has another multi turnover game, I don't know if it's game over for him for the MVP race, but it's just going to make it a lot, a lot more difficult. So I'm putting it on Russell Wilson this week. I think that's totally fair. And I think that it's a narrative award and he's losing control of the narrative. At a certain point, it doesn't matter if we have Mahomes fatigue. If you put up 48, 50 touchdowns and your team goes 13 and three, and you're clearly the best player in the league, that's going to eventually take over. I think that if Rodgers goes step for step with Mahomes, people will talk themselves into the Rodgers resurgence story and he may win it. I think that Mahomes' bar is still higher just because he won it recently. Because even if he didn't win the MVP last year, we have the Mahomes Super Bowl victory and MVP and performance not that far in the rearview mirror. So I do think that other players have an opening because of that. But at a certain point, Mahomes is just playing too well to not give it to him. And I think we might be trending in that direction. All right. My answer for who has the most at stake this week the AFC South, man. The AFC South has the most at stake. I mean, we have a big Thursday night game between the 5-3 and three Colts and the 6-2 and two Titans. This is a monster game. It's a huge stretch of the Colts' schedule. They dropped that game against Baltimore. They have two games against Tennessee in the next three weeks. This is going to go a long way to determine who ends up winning this division. I think it's a fascinating matchup. The Colts are third in the NFL in yards per attempt allowed on play-action throws. Ryan Tannehill leads the NFL in yards per attempt on play-action throws at 10.5. Something's got to give. You have a team that's really good in the middle of the field. 
you know, Darius Leonard, and you watch the mobility of those linebackers, how they can get back into coverage, even when teams do fake a run and they have to step up. There's so much athleticism in the middle of that Colts defense. I think they're a tough matchup for this Titans offense. And the Titans, you know, they had a fine game against the Bears, but their offense wasn't exactly crushing a very good Bears defense. So I'm fascinated to watch this one. I think it's stylistically a really interesting matchup and a really important one for who's going to kind of wrestle away control of that division. I just think it's so interesting because these are two, I think, pretty high variance teams right now where we've both seen games or we've seen games from both of these teams where they look like AFC championship caliber type teams, like as good as anybody in the NFL. And we've seen games out of both teams that were like, what the hell just happened? Like complete disaster games. And then you throw it on a Thursday night and anything could happen. I mean, you could literally tell me any outcome from this game. And I would probably believe you given... (laughs) what Philip Rivers is capable of, four touchdowns, four interceptions, any of these things could happen. So um, I'm pretty excited about it. My daughter likes to watch Thursday Night Football. I think I'm going to be able to teach her a lot of really fun things about Philip Rivers and Derrick Henry this week. So really excited also about that Thursday game. The more people learning about Philip Rivers, the better. I, I support all Philip Rivers education. So I'm totally okay with that. I It's a big game for Philip Rivers and a big game for the Colts offense because they looked awful last week against the Ravens. They're playing against a Tennessee defense that is aggressively mediocre. So if they're going to get back on track, this is the type of week that they're going to need to do it. And again, a huge week in fighting for and jockeying for a position in that division. All right, Lindsay, we're going to skip our one big question because we answered a couple of reader questions and we have to get to Brendan. But as always, so fun to do this with you and uh, we'll be back next week. And I am very pleased now to be joined by Brendan Hunt, who plays Coach Beard on Ted Lasso. I, I can't believe we're doing this. I'm very excited that we made it happen. Uh, I have too. I've been reading it since Grantland. This is, this is a real culmination here. That is hilarious to me. And as we, we you and I were trading messages after I tweeted about Ted Lasso, I said, this is occasionally a small, beautiful world. It's not often anymore, but every once in a while, you have those moments. So we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot of shared experiences. You're from Chicago. I am from the suburbs and live in Chicago. You're a Bears fan. I love the show. So we got a lot of stuff we want to talk about. So just first and foremost, though, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in the city? Yeah, so we moved a lot. Uh, when I was born, we lived in Rogers Park, um, and you know, cause my my parents got divorced when I was uh, very young. Um, <laughs> so then, for a while, we lived uh, near Belmont and Broadway. Uh, then we moved by St. Alphonsus on Wellington. Then we moved back to the same old apartment on Belmont and Broadway. Then I lived with my grandmother at like uh, State and Cedar for a year and a half, and then finally my stepfather came along, and we got sort of you know, entrenched at uh, Belmont and Southport basically for about six years. But at that point, because of where I was living with my grandmother, which is when I took the placement tests, I tested into Kenwood Academy in Hyde Park. So I was taking an hour ride on the school bus every morning just to get to school, which in retrospect was not necessary. But uh, what are you going to (laughs) do? That is a long ride. Wrigley down to Hyde Park for the people who don't know. It's the north side all the way to the the south side. It's not close. So good for you. Committed to your education. Lane Tech was right there. What's wrong with Lane Tech? (laughs) This is very inside Chicago for people who don't know. (laughs) uh, So I also, you went to school in Bloomington. I was considering going to school in Bloomington. 
I the one school I almost played Division three football at, like the school that wanted me to play there the most, was Illinois Wesleyan. Like I went on a visit there and everything. I didn't end up doing it, but that was the only place I really thought about playing high school or college football at. Uh, well, my tiny point of order, Bloomington is Wesleyan, but I was in at Illinois State in uh, Bloomington Normal. Uh, Bloomington Normal, yeah. Of the Twin Cities, but uh, but um, I didn't know Wesleyan even had football. I mean, they, I assume they did had football itself. They did. I went to their high. I. It was, this is a story no one cares about, but I played, I'm, I'm in it. I played, I went to their camp the summer before my senior year. And it was one of the only times I ever got to play defense at a camp. And I was a much better defensive player than an offensive player. And I was, I was really good that week. Like everyone, all my friends were like, Jesus, what happened to you? I played really well that week. They really wanted me. They had me come and visit. But that year I only played offense on my high school team because we just didn't have enough guys on offense. So I couldn't play it both ways. So I didn't, I never got to really show it off, but they saw it. So they were very interested in me in ways that other schools were not, which, it, you know, it must have, it must break your heart to this day to know that you were this close to living in Bloomington normal. And that's right. That's know. right. I think about it all the time, how that division three football career never unfolded. So you are a Bears fan. I am a Bears fan. It is not a good time to be a Bears fan. You're currently wearing, people can't see this, a Super Bowl shuffle t-shirt. So I want to talk about better Bears times. I, every time I talk about Bears fans who've watched the team for a long time and are familiar with the team, I'm always curious what your just crazy Bears fan takes are. Like I have several. Like I think Tommy Harris would have been a Hall of Famer if he hadn't gotten hurt. I think that Kyle Orton actually would have been a better quarterback than Jay Cutler if they just let him stay on the team. So I have like a dozen of those. What is your 90s and 2000s Bears take that only Bears fans would understand? Um, Well, for one thing, uh, I I guess I have two. One 90s-ish. The Eric Kramer era is just underappreciated. It's a great year. 94 is a great year. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we had a season under Eric Kramer where we had a 3,000-yard passer, a 1,000-yard rusher, and 2,000-yard receivers, Um, like Jeff Graham and and Curtis Conway both. Am I I conflating things? But we had this incredibly insane un-Bears offense for one year, and now when people, you know, when CBS does their uh, graphics of like, well, now they've got uh, Nick Foles, but they haven't had a good quarterback since Jim McMahon, and they show that same old graphic. (laughs) Like, Eric Kramer was – for a brief window, absolute. Am I allowed to curse in this show? Yes, you can. Absolute fucking magic. I loved him. Um, <laughs> All right. So that year, Eric Kramer threw for 3,800 yards and 29 touchdowns. Rashawn Salam rushed for 1,000 yards. Curtis Conway and Jeff Graham both had 1,000 yards receiving. Jeff Graham had 1,300 yards that season. Curtis Conway scored 12 touchdowns. It's the 95 Bears. Ugh. Ugh. Uh, the one year, uh, the one year, the one year. The other people always talk about how the bears haven't had a quarterback and that's the dearth of talent over the history of the franchise. I would argue that the receivers they've had are arguably worse than the quarterbacks they've had. The bears all time leading receiver in terms of yardage is Johnny Morris, who Still. was like a, sl- a, a, a flanker, like back way in the day who played some running back and some receiver. That's how few good receivers they've had for extended time in Chicago. And he was a better like local sports TV anchor guy yes. than he was receiver, which is just yes. a testament to how good a TV guy he was, really. But like, I was <laughs> shocked to learn that he had been an athlete because he never looked like one. Um, yeah, like, and then when we get good receivers, we get rid of them. Oh, Sean Jeffrey. <clears throat> so I don't that, understand. The 2013 Bears are the ultimate blip. I mean, they everyone's been talking about how this is just the same old story this year. It's 20 years of bad offense, but that is Josh McCown and Kyle or uh, Josh McCown. 
Alshon Jeffrey and Brandon Marshall erasure. Like that 2013 Bears offense was actually really fun. And it's hilarious that we have to hold on to one half of a season from a chronic backup quarterback like Josh McCown. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's all we've got. My little tiny 2000 takes. So 2000s are a little off for me because I was in Amsterdam for a big chunk of that That's time. That's right, which we'll talk pre, about. Pre-streaming, so you couldn't just up and watch every Bears game. We, in fact, we went to one bar in the red light district on a Sunday and just got whatever game we got. And sometimes it was the Dolphins and the Seahawks. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> we're all starving. But every once in a while, it was a Bears game. So, but so I have just two thoughts from that decade. One is, um, because we happen to have that one game, Mike Brown is God and should have yes. a number retired. yes. Um, and the other is, well, this was a playoff game, so it was more available, but that, that Bears Panthers game where Erlocker goes up for that one handed, you know, beak hand close and the point of the ball interception. <laughs> I've never in my life watched any sporting event or physical feat and by anyone I liked or disliked and immediately gone, Oh yeah, he's on PEDs. There's no, there's no way <laughs> that's not a human thing that just happened. But and the takeaway from that game is if he were on it, then what was Steve Smith doing? Because I have never seen a single player bear, burn, burn down a Chicago Bears defense more than Steve Smith did that day. Yeah, it was terrifying. I, don't think, I certainly don't think it was only Erlocker's sample that was being looked away from during that period. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but that was just – that was inhuman. It was inhuman. I really the, – the Mike Brown thing is also a bummer, along with Tommy Harris, just one of those guys that if he had stayed healthy, uh, he would have been – his whole career would have been totally different. I mean, he had two really, really great years when he was totally healthy, but if he hadn't gotten hurt, his career would have been so much different. All right. Yeah, he had a knack for magic. Yeah. He right. really did. And I, mean, I remember forever. I will remember that 2001 game, just staying up with my dad. I was, would have been 13 or 14 staying up with my dad, watching that game, go into overtime and have him get the walk off touchdown. It's still like one of the more fun bears moments of my life. All yeah. right. I want to talk about the show because I loved it. I mean, not surprisingly. I watched it in like two days. Everyone kept saying, you should watch it. You should watch it. You'll love it. And because I'm just an eternally earnest Midwestern person, I think that's why they were pointing me to it. That's exactly what my takeaway was. It was so good. And it just made you feel things. And I was there were so many little tiny moments. I want to talk about the scene with you and Jason in the pub. But there's a line when you guys are talking and he mentions Cuckoo's Nest. And you're like, yeah, I was more of a Tabor guy. And there are like, there's so many of those. I'm sure you guys just had so much fun trying to like snip those in every once in a while. Because there's so many like tiny pop culture references in the show that people probably wouldn't get because they're laughing at the joke that came right before it. <laughs> uh, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, we, you know, Jason has a philosophy. And it's really Jason's philosophy that's sort of guiding how we do this show more than anything else. But Jason has a philosophy that in every scene there should be three things happening. You know, there's, and you know, one of them is the actual what's happening in the scene. And then, you know, by the time you get to the third thing, it's just whatever's a fun detail that, that we like. And what it ends up leading us to is having scenes that are pretty dense. Um, yeah, you know, they not, really are. But just not like 30 rock level pace or density. Um, you know, so like we're still at a like more relaxed uh, pace, but dense for that pace. So yeah, that lends itself to, uh, to references. And we just have a pretty broad, you know, pop culture knowledge in our, in our room. Um, you know, we all love musicals, uh, and, <laughs> and, and, uh, Christopher Lloyd, I mean, you know, the guy who played Tabor and of course we have our Doc Brown reference. I was Christopher Lloyd once, uh, for Halloween in high school. I was, well, I was Reverend Jim specifically and, um, at Kenwood Academy, not a big taxi watching crowd. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't describe it as a hit, 
but uh, <laughs> but I've retained my love for him <laughs> to this day. Do you guys have 30 Rock writers on the staff? Because I think I do see similarities in like how it is paced and what the density is like. 30 Rock's my favorite comedy of all time. So I, it is funny that you say that because I almost caught that when I was watching it. Uh, we do not. Uh, Jason, you know, did a lot of work on that show. Yeah. Um, uh, not as a writer, but he certainly saw that process a lot. And uh, his wife at the time um, was a writer producer on that yep. show. Um, the great Kay Cannon. And um, so we know we've got XSNL. X, we've got X. Um, Oh gosh, what did he do? He did uh, Modern Family, Will and Grace, uh, you know, some people from Rick and Morty, a lot of stuff. And then Bill Lawrence, who is, you know, Scrubs and Cougar Town and Spin City. So, but yeah, th- there's a lot of, uh, not a, a lot of knowledge being brought to the table in that room. So when was the moment, if you could describe it for me, that this was, that you've learned this was possible? Because obviously you guys did the promos for NBC, some time passes. When did you find out they want to turn Ted Lasso into a TV show? Yeah, well, um, we... So we did the first one. It was a bit of a lark. It's good fun. Yeah, everyone had a good time. And then the next year, they're like, could you guys do that again? I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, oh, okay, sure. And doing that, and then we had Tim Howard as a guest. And when we talked to Tim Howard, and, you know, had him in our, you know, in Jason's trailer, like go over with him. is like, like, cool, thanks, man, for doing this. And uh, so in these videos, oh, did you, have you seen the videos before? And Tim Howard goes, like, laughs at us. Like, uh, yeah, like a thousand times. We watch it in the locker rooms. That's incredible. Like, what? And like, I had just been to um, the World Cup that summer. Like, I had seen him against Belgium live. And like, Tim Howard saying, yeah, basically, basically saying, like, we're watching these in the in Premier League locker rooms was like, okay. <laughs> and then we found out that like, even though these were made for an American audience, these videos are being watched as much in England as they were uh, in America. It's like, all right. And then finally, basically, uh, uh, Olivia, Olivia Wilde, Jason's uh, partner slash baby mama, I think is the legal term. She basically <laughs> told him like, you're doing this as a show. You're going to go to London and you and your friends are going to make this show together and you're going to have a great time. And um, that's what's happening. Um, and then she's got juice now on the production side, I'm sure, because of how much success she's had directing. Because she's yeah. done a lot of that now, which makes total sense. Yeah, she's she's incredibly talented and she has a knack for a, a, a wide variety of things. And for this, her knack was in prognostication because she was spot on. The only thing wrong about her prognostication was it would take another six years because instead of doing this show, they decided to have children, uh, which I guess they are happy with. No, uh, their kids are beautiful. Love Daisy, love Otis. Um, so I, I basically gave up on it. And then one day, sort of out of the blue, Jason's like, oh, by the way, is that the... Because we, we worked on a pilot and a series arc. Me and him and uh, Joe Kelly are kind of the original three. And... Um, and then it went away for years. And then one day Jason's like, oh, I'm talking to Bill Lawrence tomorrow to see if there's any projects we can do together. Is that Ted Lasso stuff still online? Like, yeah, That's man. incredible. Yeah, man. Let me let me fucking send, send you a, a Wikipedia page that shows you how Google Docs work. Yeah, they're still online, <laughs> man. Um, and then it kind of just happened pretty quickly from there. And here we are. That's amazing. When you guys sat down, because I think that a lot of the conversation around the show has been that it's this light in a dark world kind of stuff where Ted is this, this eternally optimistic character. And, and, and I think in a certain way, that's correct. And I understand why it's characterized like that. But when you guys were sitting down to write him and to kind of flesh him out, who did you have in mind? Like, what, what did you want him to be and where did you draw? And what did you draw on when you were kind of trying to flesh that person out? Sure. Um, so, you know, Jason's from Kansas and I spent all that time in Bloomington Normal. And, and so... We have a just kind of a Midwestern sense of things, and uh, and Joe Kelly is from Georgia, but he has a very like, you know, mature Southern demeanor <laughs> about him. 
Um, so Jason is a huge Kansas fan, so he loves Roy Williams and he loves Bill Self. I think he, he knows Bill Self a little bit too. God, I, I hear that so much. I hear Roy Williams' voice now. I, I will never be able to unhear that now when I watch the show. <laughs> um, and he also went through, I think he got as far as like AAU in, uh, in basketball. So he, he's just had a lot of good coaches and good, solid Midwestern guys. And, you know, for me, I'm actually, I'm actually thinking of like Midwestern theater professors I had who were just upstanding you know, people who cared about their charges and were trying to trying to make them better. I do know one specific thing Jason's talked about is he when he's hung out with Bill Self at like a coach's conference of some kind or another, every coach who sees another coach, if they know their coaches, they just call each other coach. Hey yeah. coach, hey there coach, how are you doing there, coach? Really good coach. <laughs> See you for breakfast, coach. You got a coach. And like it's cool that there's like no hierarchy in a way. Like it is everyone is coach. We're all coaches yeah. together. And um yeah, that's that's a, like a telling little molecule of philosophy in a way. So, and I'm curious, even a little bit further than that, what you did with Coach Beard, some of the details are great. Like, I love the chess. The chess is so perfect. Like, it's exactly what it should be. The fact that they're just playing it while talking is, like, amazing. So did you have any, like, savant coaches in mind when you were trying to build out what you wanted his affect to be? Um, for Beard, no. Because Beard, we think, you know, this isn't canon yet. This is what we think right now. Um, Beard... Um, he and Ted were probably friends in college, but then they didn't see each other for like 10 years because that's when Beard started following fish on the road. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then Dave Matthews and uh, he took a lot of acid and then he took too much acid and then he was stuck in Europe for a girl and then things got bad and then he's back in Kansas and he's living in some kind of meth den. And then Ted hears about it and he saves him. So um, Beard's thing is more of just being like a journeyman in the sense of journey. <laughs> like he has seen too much. <laughs> Uh, he's brought it all back and now he just, he enjoys being, he enjoys being a number two. The, the kind of coach he isn't is like a Charlie Weiss or someone who is a coordinator who's just can't wait to show what a head coach he really is. Uh, yeah, exactly. Then, yeah. Yeah. He's, he is not that he enjoys being, uh, part of a, uh, part of a system and just being the support thing that Ted needs because Ted is not X's and O's. Ted is not rules. Ted is connecting to these young men and, and getting them out there as best he can. But you know, someone needs to know what happens when the ball goes over the goal line. And, uh, and that's beer. And I think that that dynamic between you and him and I, your friendship just shines through. I mean, you guys have known each other for clearly a long time. It's obvious watching it, just the interplay that you have. But one of my favorite scenes on the whole show, even before I knew I was talking to you was the scene that you have with Jason at the pub near the end of the first season when you guys have like your first real kind of clash. First of all, big moment for you. Really getting to shine. I'm sure like when you're sitting there that day, there was probably some butterflies. Like you really get to go at that scene, which is great. But I really liked it because I one of my favorite parts of the show was watching just how authentic the reactions to Ted are. Early on, there's just a lot of eye rolling. There's a lot of like, oh, this fucking guy. But that's typical when you have that sort of arc, when you win over the cynics. But I think you coming back around later in the show and having to push back against that everything is sunshine and rainbows nonsense and like sometimes in life it's about results. I thought that was a really good way to kind of bring it back and not just have it be this linear thing where he wins everyone over and that's all it is. So when you guys were kind of trying to play with that tone and that like it's all great, you know, all that matters is how you're feeling and everything else – how do you kind of figure out the way that you can build tension into that as it goes? Cause I thought that was a really smart way to do it. Oh, cool. Thank you. Um, building the tension of it, I guess it's just a matter of 
we're at that point we're trying to serve the relegation story um yeah. because and partially for our audience you know who are mostly american and have never heard of relegation before so you know we're dropping breadcrumbs for a few episodes in there and um relegation means you know unlike in uh in american especially major league sports like you can't coast cannot coast you cannot just be like well we didn't get them this time but uh, here's a few lessons for you like no there is a there is a bottom that drops out um so as much as anything we're trying to declare for the audience like there's there's fucking stakes here now um you cannot just be mediocre uh like europeans don't understand what it means uh to be the chicago cubs pre-2016 like they (laughs) lovable loser is not a thing like you just the idea of tanking is just yeah. would be completely foreign to them. Exactly. Yeah. So it was just about explaining that. And then also in terms of interpersonally being like the value of beard is, is not just that he supports Ted, especially in front of others. Um, but like he lets Ted know when he's, when he's fucking up. And, and so, yeah, that, that was just the time to do it. That little, there's a moment right at the beginning of that scene where you're looking off to the side as he walks up and he tells you that, your girlfriend is playing chess with someone else. And you're like, she's just playing her game. It's great. Just like you looking to the side in that moment is just played perfectly. So you mentioned earlier, you lived in Europe for years and yep. you and Jason, I, you did boom Chicago at the same time. Yeah. I was there for about five years. Okay. Uh, Joe Kelly was there for uh, about two and a half years or three years. And then Jason, um, Jason visited a lot. And then he did like a four month stint when his, gotcha. uh, fiance, the great gay can, uh, had been there for a couple of years and they were, uh, they were long distancing. And then finally he was like, no, fuck it. I'm just going to come over there and insinuate my way into the cast, <laughs> which he did. <laughs> he essentially How, declared he was part of the cast without being asked. <laughs> and for those pe- people who don't know, it's an improv troupe in, in Amsterdam. Yeah. And, like, improv Seth Myers did it. Yeah. Like second, second city uh, with, with more tech. basically. <laughs> and how would you say that experience informed the show? Like what were you able to draw on just from your time there to kind of make it a little bit more fleshed out, a little bit more realistic, a little bit more authentic. I'm sure you drew on that a lot. Uh, yeah. Like, um, you know, there's, there's stuff about being in a new place that, you know, you kind of have to show because whether it's happened or not before, it's, it's a real part of the experience, such as looking the long way, looking the wrong way at intersection and, uh, and almost (laughs) dying every five minutes. Um, but, but also just, you know, in in Amsterdam, we were, you know, it's slightly different being in Holland than in England, but in Holland, you know, they just want you to be yourself and, and be honest. And, uh, and eventually, you know, you'll get through their, uh, their shell of resistance too, just by, (laughs) just by hanging out. Um, all people are good everywhere, uh, no matter how they seem at first, but, um, they don't have to like you right away, but that doesn't mean stay away from them forever. Um, so hang in there, be yourself and assume that everyone's good under their first reaction to you. Um, I think that's the, that's the part of the Amsterdam experience that we were, we were taking along. And that shines through. I mean, if you guys want to feel good, if you want a little pick me up, if you want something to kind of wind down your day after you're done working and you just want an exhale that I think a lot of us have needed here over the last year, I could not recommend this show more because it is a perfect outlet for all of that. It's on Apple TV plus. Brendan Hunt, thank you very much, man. I really appreciate the time. This is great. Thank you, Robert. Go Bears. All right, guys. That's all we got today. Thank you so much 
to Brendan Hunt for coming on to talk Ted Lasso. Thank you to Lindsay. We will be back on Sunday, me and Nate recapping all things week 10. Before that, please go rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Really appreciate that. Also, please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show. Our $1 a week promotion is still going. I promise you it will be worth it. Every single day, there is something worth reading about the NFL on the site, and I highly recommend you pick up a subscription if you have not. Really appreciate the time as always, guys. We'll talk to you later. This was The Athletic Football Show. Hey, football fans, this is Diana Rossini from The Athletic. Get the top stories in pro football snapped directly to your inbox with our latest NFL newsletter, Scoop City. Jacob Robinson and I will bring you the daily scoop of top NFL articles, posts, and podcasts every Monday to Friday. Sign up for free now at theathletic.com backslash scoop.